June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week, we come to you from Montreal, in Quebec, in Canada, one of my favorite cities in North America that most Americans don't know or even appreciate uh, and such a great place to hang out, such a great place to hub, such a great place to uh, enjoy great food, great art, great culture. There's a museum here. I'm going to talk about it a little bit later in the show. Every time I come up here, I basically disappear into that museum. Uh, it's the Museum of Fine Arts here in Montreal. They do an amazing job. Uh, I, I think at one point my life was changed uh, by that museum many, many years ago when they had an exhibit of Da Vinci where they actually went into his notebooks and built what he designed and didn't even realize he drew. Um, I mean, the guy invented the helicopter, didn't even know it. Amazing stuff. Anyway, lots to get to today uh, to talk about. Lots of stuff in the news, so let's talk about that. You've heard the announcement that President Obama is going to Cuba. Uh, he'll be the first president in 70 years to go. You know the last guy who went? Calvin Coolidge, silent cow. Well, this isn't silent now. This is legacy time for the Obama administration. 
because he really will be the president that opened the door. should have been opened up years ago, in my opinion. Now it's being opened. What else is going on? And you may have read they've negotiated an air rights deal to Cuba. The United States signed the agreement with the Cuban minister of the Cuban foreign minister to allow for scheduled commercial airline service. First time in about 60 years. That'll be starting in the fall. But the jockeying will start now. As you see, every airline, United, American, Delta, uh, Spirit, um, you name it, Alaska, they're all going to be knocking down the door. But there's a very interesting IT, uh, item in this deal, and it's this. If you read it in, in general, it calls for 110 flights uh, a day between Cuba and the United States. But now, take a look at it carefully, and you find out it limits that to just 20 a day uh, between between Havana and the United States. That means they're going to divide the other 90 over many other airlines and other airports in Cuba. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that gets divvied up. I can assure you that if you're the Minister of Tourism of any Caribbean country right now, you're worried because the airlines aren't going out and buying new planes for the service. They're going to reallocate their assets and reposition their flights to go where the most money is, which brings up the next point. How expensive is Cuba going to be? My prediction, surge pricing like you've never seen. Why? Because there are 60,000 hotel rooms in Cuba. That's not a lot. They're already filled by the Europeans who've been going there for the last 50 years, not to mention the number one vacation destination of Canadians. Still is, uh, from from Montreal, as a matter of fact. So what's going to happen? You're going to see, first of all, the airlines aren't really going to start flying till the fall. So the first guys in will be the, will be the cruise lines starting in May. Now, imagine 5,000 people piling off a cruise ship in Havana looking for the last three remaining Cuban cigars or the last five bottles of rum. Uh, It's going to get a little crazy. And I know everybody wants to be first on their block, but my suggestion is perhaps you should be the first on your block or wait two years because it's going to take two years at least for the infrastructure to catch up with the demand, at least two years. Why? You're not seeing any U.S. hotel announcing any building in Cuba. I'll tell you why. Because if you take hotels like Hilton, for as a good example, they're not going to announce any new builds in Cuba. Why? Because they still have legal claims against the Cuban government dating back to 1961 and 1960, when they claim that they're either their properties or their land or their buildings were, were appropriated by the Cubans. So until those deals are negotiated out, you're not going to see a lot of new buildings. So you read the, my suggestion is, let's all get excited by it, but there's no middle ground here. Either be first on your block or last on your block. If you're the middle guy, you're going to be paying for that privilege, so watch out. But as I said, it's history-making, it's time, and uh, it's going to change. And the other thing is this. The other reason why I think you should be the first on your block, you know the historical designations of A.D. or B.C.? Here's my favorite one, B.K.F.C. Go before Kentucky Fried Chicken gets there, and you know they're coming. (laughs) So... If you want the most authentic, genuine experience you can have, try to get there now. Even if that means taking a charter flight before the scheduled flight start service in the fall, be a part of one of the 12 approved uh, groups that are that are sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department and by the U.S. Department of Commerce as people-to-people programs because that can get you into Cuba right now without violating any law whatsoever. Remember, the law hasn't changed yet, and because of that, uh, even though there may be scheduled service in the fall, until the law changes, you still have to be part of one of those groups. All right, let's shift gears here, because as I said at the top, we're coming to you from Montreal. And joining us right now, a woman who uh, knows a little bit about Montreal. She's a social columnist for the Montreal Gazette and 
She's got all sorts of other things, like Diary of a Social Gal, which she has to explain to me. Jennifer Campbell. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Peter. Now, the last time you were on this show, which is the last time we broadcast from Montreal, you showed up with an entourage. You brought your dog. You brought your mother. <laughs> I know. Unfortunately, they couldn't be here today. I but they them. send love. Okay, good. So you and I, in the interest of full disclosure, had dinner with a few friends last night. Yes, we I did. mean, the restaurant scene here is changing dramatically. Incredible what's going on here. I think you touched upon it earlier. Literally an explosion of gastronomy. I mean, of course, we've always had our legendary spots, which I know you're familiar with, the Gibbies, the Schwartzes for our signature smoke meat. Wait, wait, stop right now. Uh-oh. We'll talk about the Schwartzes <laughs> for those people who don't know any better. And I know I'm one of those, you know, born and raised New Yorkers. The best bagels in the world True. are right here. <laughs> yeah. They're not in New York. New York is a very close second. But I have friends of mine. I'm not making this up, Jennifer. I have friends of mine who will fly up to Montreal on a bagel run. Oh, no. They are very wise, yeah, wise do. And they, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, people say there are no good bagels in Los Angeles, by the way, because it's the water. The water doesn't hold up. But the water in New York is great. The water in Montreal is even greater. So if you come here just for the bagels, you're styling. I just thought I'd mention that. No, that is a thousand percent true. Secret ingredients. Only Montrealers are familiar with that ingredient. We can't disclose it to anyone, but they're magical, and people come to visit, they definitely have to try one. Right, we'll or six. Well, stay with me, because when we come back, we're going to delve very deeply into the social scene here <laughs> and the restaurant scene here. And I might even bring up bagels again, because... You know, I've been in Montreal 24 hours now, and I haven't had a bagel. I just realized that. That's sinful. You know what? I can't leave without doing a bagel run today. <laughs> I have to do the bagel run before I get on the plane. I will do that. I promise you. It's worth it. Any kind of bagel. I, and I have friends in New York who won't let me come back to New York without the bagels. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Joined again by Jennifer Campbell, social columnist for the Montreal Gazette, and of course, diary of a social gal. <laughs> Love the way you say it, you know. Well, even if my voice wasn't that bad, I would say it just that way anyway. With flair. With flair. All right. So we were okay. We're off of our bagel Jones here. What else? It was. It was definitely a good segue. Good. Okay. Good. Fabulous. So we were talking about some of the the, the tried and true restaurants here. Yes. Uh, So, of course, we've had our established legendary spots. But of late, in the past few years, and we're talking about this a little bit last night, there's literally been this explosion. All these young, dynamic, inspired, creative restaurateurs. I can't even keep up with them. Different teams, and the teams join each other for different properties. And they've literally launched a series of really incredible spots with many more in the works and it's really just a perfect time to come visit Montreal because while we're always known for our gastronomy now it's really gone next level and I know you've had several chefs on the show already and you're getting a sampling of that but it really is a great time to come eat and play in Montreal. All right so what are the hot restaurants? We had had dinner last night at one of them Lucille's and in fact later on in the show we'll talk to the chef but give me some others. 
My goodness, there are so many. Um, Subwa is a favorite of mine. And that's actually the team that's famous for Les Enfants Terribles, another hot spot that's been around a little while. And of course, Flygin, which is a great restaurant with Asian fusion and also a party spot. But going back to Subwa, they created literally an underground, and this is fascinating, you'll have to hit it either this trip or next time, an underground magic forest. And all of the food is also on theme. So they like to use a lot of local produce, a lot of vegetables. They've done incredible things with mushrooms. Uh-oh. No, no. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. Go ahead. Not those kind of things. But yeah, so that's definitely one of my favorites. You can go have an exquisite meal and then, of course, continue on for the party because that's definitely a place to hit after hours, after cocktails, and after a great dinner. Uh, Luciano, amazing Italian. I think you are a fan of great Italian fare. That's a wonderful spot to hit. Uh, jellyfish in the Old Port. Uh, Robbie Pessard, uh, long-established restaurateur in the city. That's his most recent launch. And that's something that's unique and also visually beautiful. Uh, design always factoring in, actually, in the most current edition of the magazine, it was our design-themed fifth anniversary issue. We talked a lot about design and actually interviewed some of the young restaurateurs and, and really got on to, you know got into the discussion of the design component because as much as they want to um, establish uh, spots known for their culinary wizardry, it's also Montreal being, of course, very much into design. They've really exploited that and, you know, created things that are worth seeing, worth experiencing. Um, Bar Henrietta on Laurier, if you're a fan of Portuguese fare. And those are the uh, fabulous people that brought us Dominion Tavern and Whiskey Cafe. Pizza? Pizza factoring into your yeah, wish list? Thin slice or thick? Um, more the thin variety. Good. That's, that's me. That's New York like? style. You bet. Okay. I've that's... never understood deep dish pizza. I never will. <laughs> I want a pizza I can fold and eat. I want to fold it like an envelope and eat it. So you're not a big fan of a brand we won't mention, who's known for their deep dish fast food pizza. You know what? They can have it all they want. <laughs> you give me a four cheese, thin sliced pizza with truffles, I'm done. Easy peasy. Okay, no easy problem. Peasy. Hey, let me, let me stop you with a yes. question here. When I first came to Montreal, and this goes back 35 years ago, I was taken up to the Laurentians, you know, whether it was for the mapling off, you know, for the sugaring off, sugaring off. Mapling's good too. I know you know what I'm talking about. Yes, and uh, and I had no idea that syrup in Canada is basically gold. A cult. But it's gold. It is. It is. I mean, and and we, we in the last couple of years we've been seeing stories about about you know like organized crime and syrup and the, <laughs> syrup thefts and maple syrup syndicates. I mean, way we roll. I mean, I grew up. Look, I grew up with Aunt Jemima. What do I know? But but it's true, isn't it? <laughs> Not to be diminished, though. She makes some good syrup. You know what I'm saying. I mean. It's true. Yes, it's it, it is remarkable and obviously very unique again to our fair country. Only in Canada would you have a guy saying, "I'm the maple syrup police." <laughs> right? Yes. And you know only what? in Canada. And then you get every pun after that, right? They they caught him, but they couldn't make the charges stick. Okay, fine. Excuse, excuse the punny. Okay, fine. Yes. But but it's true, right? It is. So not only do you Fact. do a bagel run, you got to do a syrup run. Yes, you do, and also. If but we're you gonna... have to pack it carefully. I mean, as much bubble wrap as you can find, you just don't pack it in your bag or you've ruined everything. Yeah, sticky yeah. city. Yeah, That's, no, that won't no, be fun. Yeah. But one of the things I didn't actually put on my prepared list, and of course I came prepared for you with yes. all kinds of hot spots, poutine. 
I think well, that's a national dish. Yes, I mean that is. Explain really what I mean. I know it, but what is it? What's the national okay. dish? Go ahead. Again, I'm the social gal, not necessarily the food gal, but I'm going to do my best to okay. do it What's to do it? it justice. What's in it? So of course we've got our fries. Yeah. Well done fries, like the ones last night from Lucille's. Right. And then there's that. And by the way, you just don't eat the fries. You got to have mayonnaise, or you got to have <laughs> yes. some kind of a remoulade. Well, we're with the fries. mayonnaise and fries again. Very Montreal tradition yeah. and a good one to sample. Okay, so we start off on the poutine front with our fries, and then they're drizzled, really more than drizzled, bathed in a gravy, and then we top it off with a curd cheese. And the final effect of the hot gravy and the, the cheese hospital. Is the hospital. in the hospital, right, when, the hospital. right for the bypass, yeah. but. The truth is, it is exquisite. And one of my favorites in your fair country, the beautiful and talented Kelly Ripa, she can't get enough of it. She comes to Montreal often, and that's one of her favorite things to indulge in. But she weighs two pounds, so we don't like her. Yeah, it's a bit annoying. Yeah. But she's so adorable and funny. We'll give her a pass. Yeah. She works out a lot. You ever notice that the people who weigh nine pounds <laughs> eat 50? <laughs> yes. It's terrible. Very annoying. It's terrible. Yeah, okay, it's not so acceptable. We've got that. But. What would you say right now is the signature dish here in Montreal that everybody wants? Oh, my goodness. Well, definitely poutine is up there. Um, I'm a big fan of sugar pie. That's also Explain. very Montreal-esque. Um, well, again, uh, it's very – It's. It, I've never prepared it in all honesty, but it's – a very, I consume. It. I'm a very yes. good consumer. Yes, restaurateurs in Montreal like me a lot. They see me coming. They you know, know that it's Target all over me. Look, let me stop right here. I'm going to bust Jennifer for something. Uh oh. It is. Yeah, I finally <laughs> figured it. out. No, I finally figured out what your favorite word is. You know what it is? Fabulous. No, garçon. <laughs> That's good. It's got to be. Goodness. See, she's busted. I, I got gotcha. you. I'm busted and I'm blushing. <laughs> I've never quite. That. I've never quite prepared the dish, but oh, garçon. <laughs> That's it. Yes, yeah. I make reservations well. I knew it. Um, uh, no, I, I'm not a definitely not a chef in my own right. I know the basics, but that's about it. So, um, in terms of experiencing sugar pie, definitely something to sample in Montreal and to enjoy. Uh, you don't want me to make one for you. Well. I, I do the same thing about things you're smart about because you know you're stupid about it. So if I ever built a chair, don't sit in it. <laughs> I'm safe here. Yeah, I'm good. Okay. I'm safe. Great. If I ever talk about nuclear physics, run. <laughs> run. Worry. Run. Run. <laughs> but we th we talk about sugar pie or put or poutine or any of those things. I can I can get in the kitchen. I can do stuff. I can. Just don't ever call me garçon. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Jennifer Campbell, Diary of a Social Gal, and of course, the regular contributor to the Montreal Gazette. Thank you again for joining us. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. You know, ever since I've been coming to Montreal, we've been talking to Jennifer Campbell about this earlier. You know, I, it's just the food keeps getting better and better and better. Uh, Montreal, probably right now in Canada, I would have to say is probably the hot restaurant town. Uh, Toronto, of course, always giving it a run for its money, but Montreal especially. And uh, new restaurants popping up all over the place. And especially if you're like me and you like seafood uh, and you like lobster rolls, then you go to a place called Lucille's. And uh, just been open a little less than a year. Joining me now, the chef, Luca Le Cavalier, 
How are you, sir? I'm good. Yourself? Pretty good. Uh, when we talk about uh, you know restaurants in Montreal, I mean they're popping up everywhere now. Yeah, there's. I feel like I hear about a restaurant opening about every two, two or three weeks or so. Now, now, of course, in the restaurant business, that means a restaurant closes every two or three weeks. Every two or three weeks, so it evens out. But in your situation, I mean, what I like about it is Montreal has neighborhoods. Lucille's is where? Uh, we're in Westmount. Which, by the way, is not far from, from downtown. It's, it's very easy. Yeah, it's, it's about like a five-minute drive from downtown. What's special about your cuisine? Uh, our cuisine, well... Well, you, I, by, by, by the way, I am going to get you on dessert in a second. But <laughs> uh, like for us, like we mainly focus on seafood. When we first we first opened our first location on in NDG, uh, in, it was, where, in where NDG is uh, Notre Dame de Grasse. It's another thank na- you another neighborhood, yes. uh, Montreal. Uh, it's about like ten minutes away from our current location in Westmount. It was more of a more of an oyster dive. Uh, no, it, nothing wrong with that. No, no, no. But we didn't really have like we were just doing oyster dives, small, tiny little bar, uh, restaurant, like thirty-five seater, and then eventually we started selling steaks, and then they started going cr- like crazy. So we decided to open up a steakhouse, basically, which is called Brasserie Lucille's, which is our second location, which is the bigger one of the two. Except even though you walk in there and you see all the steaks behind the window and the in the refrigerator. I go there for the seafood. Right. Yeah. A lot of people, we're, we're known for lobster rolls. Lobster rolls are one of our, not one of the biggest seller. We have a food truck for lobster rolls. We have two restaurants based off lobster rolls. Basically, we made careers off lobster rolls. But, you know, it's interesting about lobster now. The market price for lobster has dropped so much. The market price of lobster, yeah. It, uh, lobster is, like, up and down. Like, it, it, it fluctuates so much. It's never, it's never the same. Like, some, sometimes we make money off lobster rolls. Sometimes we lose money off lobster rolls. There's never really a... Uh, so basically, I have to hedge my lobster roll purchases. Right? Basically, yeah. So you like like you guys, it's always going to be the same price for us. Like if if we have a lot of lobsters cheap, then we buy high. If it's expensive, then we try to buy as least least amount of possible. But the dish that I liked that you had was the the salmon tartare. Salmon tartare. That's one of our huge sellers. But too. what's interesting, you know, I can say the word salmon tartare on the radio, and everybody has their own vision of what that looks like and what that tastes like. But what goes into yours? Us uh, so mainly, it's like it's. It's a ginger vinaigrette that makes the whole thing. We do uh, iceberg, which usually everybody hates. Nobody iceberg. You do a big wedge of iceberg, and you look at this and go, "What's that?" Yeah, Yeah. basically, like especially like around like coast, like iceberg is usually something that everybody hates, and you're not supposed to talk about. Listen, with enough blue cheese dressing, it's It's, great. It's delicious. It's the best. We also do a uh, blue cheese wedge salad too. With as I said, with enough blue cheese (laughs) dressing, right? It's it's always good. So it's the vinaigrette that does it, right? Yeah, that's it's all it is. That's all it is. Don't reveal it like that. <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty special. What's the matter? What's the? Uh, I know you guys are less than a year old, but I always ask every chef this question, so you're no exception. What's the one dish that you put on the menu that you thought, "Wow, everybody's going to love this," and it tanked? And what's the one dish that you figure, "Well, we'll put it on, but who's going to order this?" And everybody can't wait to get it. Uh, right? In, oh man, that's a that's a tough one. Tell the truth. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Is a lot a lot of the dishes that we, we that we have on the menu right now, we already tried at the other restaurant to make sure that wouldn't happen. Well, then talk uh, about the other restaurant because I know you had some turkeys. Come on. Yeah, oh, yeah. Man, I'm trying to think. There's <laughs> this is harder than you would think. Yeah. This is every dish was a success. No, not 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 every single dish. That's that's for sure. But I'm trying to like I can't I really can't like pinpoint one dish that was I mean there's always like a couple dishes that will only sell like three or four a night like uh, we we had the we had a fish ceviche at one point that didn't sell so well but like it was on and off like some nights we'll sell ten the other nights we won't sell any it's but is it seasonal here because of weather no I think it's because uh, like we base we have like 
all their customers are usually a lot of the same customers that we right. get. So they kind of come in and like they, it's it's a very it's a small community in in uh, West Mountain Lake. But I but I would think that the colder the weather, the more that, the that, comfort food. Right. Well, that's it. But like ceviche is something that we'll have like in, that's a summer dish in the summer, and then we change right. we change the menu twice a year. We change it for winter, and then we change we do take off a couple items. And then put it back on. Like, I told you I wouldn't let you get off the hook without dessert. Okay. <laughs> What's that chocolate thing you do? You oh, the chocolate. Yeah. Basically, it's a chocolate It's a chocolate mousse with uh, caramel on top of it and salted peanuts. Yeah, but the cool thing is you serve it in this mason jar. In a mason jar, right. So it's not in this little champagne glass with three spoonfuls, you're done. No. It's, you can dig in there for a while. You know, the idea behind the mason jar is it makes it really easy for us. <laughs> hey, and that means more for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you're, if you're hungry, save space for dessert because it comes larger than you think. Yeah, right, exactly. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for a laugh. Whenever I come up to Canada, I like to get people on the show who are not just Canadian. Who don't just live here, but they travel the world and then bring back to stuff in Canadian, in, 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 their, in their Canadian culture. And yes, there is a Canadian culture, believe it or not. Uh, and my next guest knows all about that. She's the co-founder of Lux Story Media, based in Toronto, but she's nice enough to come visit us here in Montreal today. Bargavi Varma, how are you, Bargavi? I'm great. How are you? Now, I, I noticed you smiling and nodding your head when I talked about Canadian culture. Yes, because Canadian culture, um, maybe even... Five to seven years ago was associated with Tim Hortons. I think there's... Oh, yeah. Look, look. Tim Hortons <laughs> is like one notch above Denny's. Yes. Uh, maybe. Well, maybe. Okay. the people who have those double-doubles every day would maybe disagree. They act like it's um, nectar. Okay, fine. Not for me, personally, okay, but... Uh, yeah, so I think there was... Um, well, wait, but let me stop you there. Yeah. The other problem about Canadian culture is the perception that everybody is Dudley Do-Right, or that there's the one, you know, the Royal Canadian Mounted Cop in his red uniform, and... And that everything ends in the words A Y. How are you, A? Let's go get a beer, A. You know, that's really not Canadian culture. It's anymore. really not Canadian culture. And when you throw out a stat like Toronto being the most multicultural city in the world, that kind of answers itself. Having said that, we as Canadians are very humble and we can take a joke. So we do like adding in the A at the end of it. So I will not make it through this interview without adding an A myself. I will tell You've you, been warned. You, you talk about being humble. Let me add one more thing to that. I find that Canadians do something that they absolutely should not do. Canadians spend an overt amount of, I mean, an over amount of time apologizing for Canada. Yes. I mean, I'll, I'll show up in Halifax, which is a city I love, and people say, well, I know it's not New York. I'm sorry. I said, what are you apologizing for? There's a reason why I'm here. I love Halifax. And this is, I would say, for me, I feel up until this year, specifically this year, um, that sense of apology or, uh, you know, just not tooting our own horn or being excited about what it is and the, the breadth and depth of what we have to offer, especially in the three major cities, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, uh, which we'll get to in a second. I think uh, that's just kind of been our attitude of not recognizing our own greatness, our own history, and 
call it great PR campaigns, call it, uh, you know, a groundswell or call it the, the Drake movement. Um, there's a new love that Canadians are feeling that started to really take place kind of around the Vancouver Olympics and has been growing and growing specifically to Toronto, though. I mean, Drake has a lot to do with it, but this great PR recognition by travel and leisure recognition by, you know, lots of great publications that um, Vogue <laughs> that named West Queen West as the second top neighborhood in the world. There are some people from Toronto that even said, Ooh, I mean, we're great, but even we are surprised by that. So the accolades have just been pouring in. And I think in true Canadian style, we needed other folks to say, hey, you guys are great. And then we're, we're kind of sitting back going, oh, yeah, yeah, we are. That's right. Yeah, so I think that's kind of are. where it's at right now. Yeah. All right. So now that you've opened that door, Smarty Pants, what's, what's, <laughs> what's so great about it? Um, well, talking about Canada broadly, oh gosh, um, I mean, there's you don't obviously have to talk broadly be as specific as you, you know. Want. I mean, well, I think the the size of the country in it in and of itself offers such varied geographies that, from just kind of a physical, you know, nature aspect, that is just an incredible thing that we, even in Canada, don't appreciate. And this happens a lot. Sorry, go ahead. No, the size of Canada is daunting. Yes, um, I always ask my friends in the United States. To tell me the largest body of water in North America, and they'll pick one of the Great Lakes. Right. They're so wrong. It's Hudson Bay. You look at the map and you go, "Oh my God!" And people don't—they don't even have a clue. It's mm-hmm. how big it is. I mean, you look at Eastern Canada, and you know the the constant comment you hear, especially when Canadians finally make it out there, especially as far out as Newfoundland. You hear, "Wow, Canada's this beautiful." And you hear Canadians saying this a lot. And now, especially in the travel space and specifically the hotel space, you know, starting to see from um, like the, the hospitality industry, great properties, even like a Fogo Island Inn, which I know you and I have talked about. Uh, uh, tell everybody where it is. Ah, yes. Fogo Island Inn is uh, on an island off an island, as they say. So it's an island off of the coast of Newfoundland's Newfoundland. main island. Uh, having been there myself, you know, talking to Newfoundlanders, they find Fogo Island to be far out. So it's really remote. And yet- what's, a, what's amazing about it is, first of all, you have the island itself. Mm-hmm. Then you have the architecture of this particular location, which juts out of like nothing, right? And it's amazing. Like the villain of a James Bond movie should really be sure. It's the last scene. <laughs> I don't think it's what the owners either Cobb would want. It's, but- it's, it's, the, it's the scene in which... He shows up with Ursula Andress, yes. and then and yes. then somebody in that island hotel says, "Oh, Mister Bond, you're going to die." Yes. and yet this is where he goes Why back. Why do we he all lives. have the same vision? Exactly, we do. We do. It's great. And so the, the, the bottom uh-huh. line is, it was said here first. Yes, I know, but no, it's true. And you have so, so many surprises in that part of the world. Right. Hey, stick around with us because I want you to come back a little bit later in the show, and we finish these thoughts about the the culture and the spirit that people don't realize that is actually here. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. One of my very early reasons to have a love affair in Montreal has to do with my next guest. Uh, it's the oldest museum in Canada, and I was here in Montreal staying at the old Ritz Hotel, and somebody said to me, hey, you should check out the museum. And I have to tell you, I usually have a, a bad reaction 
to most museums because I feel like I'm being forced to go and see things I'm not really interested in or there's not a lot of interaction or there's not an experience that I like. But I wanted to uh, be polite, and I went to this museum. And they were having a uh, an exhibit there that was so fascinating and so amazing, I actually delayed my trip back to New York for two more days and stayed and went back three more times to the Museum of Fine Arts. And what were they doing there? They were having an exhibit of Leonardo da Vinci. Now, no, this wasn't the Louvre. This was not Mona Lisa. They had actually went to his no- they had gone to his notebooks, all his design books, and they actually recreated, they built the things from his drawings. And when you saw them come to life and you saw the historical explanation of them, you couldn't help but go, this is the one guy I'd love to have dinner with in my life because he did everything. He may not have even known it at the time, but this is a guy who designed the helicopter, didn't know it. They built it. It was displayed at the museum. His architectural ideas of how to support structures was so far ahead of his time. Everything was amazing. Well, guess what? It's still the oldest museum in Canada, and they still continue to blow me away. And joining me now, the curator of Asian arts and archaeology. Now we're really talking. <laughs> Laura Vigo. How are you, Laura? I'm fine, Peter. Thanks for having me. Now, you didn't know about my experience before you came on the show, did you? I think I wasn't born yet, I no. guess. <laughs> okay. Now you're leaving the show. It's over. It's over. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, Very bad. But... The museum has done some great stuff. What are you doing right now? Well, at the moment, actually, another reason for you to delay your departure another three days, because we have in the most amazing exhibit on Pompeii. It's a, gla- it's a great exhibition. It's about 220 artifacts coming directly from Pompeii and Naples. On loan. Yes, of course. <laughs> we can't have them forever. But the exhibition is going to be on until September the 5th, so you might have a time to come, you know, in I like summer. that, yeah. But what, other than just exhibiting artifacts, what's the most fascinating thing about this exhibit? Well, the most fascinating fact is that you're plunged into the past. Basically, the idea is you have to have this immersive kind of experience. Then you get into the past, and you're actually living a day in Pompeii. So you're going through the streets of Pompeii, you're entering the houses, you're actually having fun as the Pompeians used to do. And at the end, you have this immersive experience of the, the total eruption uh, experience. We're and talking Vesuvius? Of course. <laughs> and um, it, all, uh, it all ends up with a beautiful installation, including several of the cast uh, of the victims of Pompeii. And a beautiful um, uh, work of art is actually a video, video uh, work by Loren Grasso. Well, let's talk about Vesuvius for a second because sure. you know I grew up studying it a little bit you know and at the time although I don't know if anybody can actually confirm it it's still recorded as probably what the largest eruption ever well, it was in a sense that, of course, it, it was a very sudden, it actually happened in less than 19 hours, and he uh, completely covered, uh, I would say, a radius of 20 kilometers all around Vesuvius, more on the southern side of Vesuvius. It destroyed it. It destroyed it. I mean, it actually didn't destroy it as such. It actually covered it up in ashes, and it actually preserved it for about 1,600 years, which is the the actual wealth of information that we get from it's Pompeii. The it's the preservation. Exactly, exactly. It's like having a time capsule. Are you talking about, you know, when we talk about an eruption now, when there's a plane crash, people can be completely, you know, destroyed. They can be vaporized. In a situation like this, you say they were preserved. Well, actually preserved, I mean, I'm talking about the... the, uh, 
the artifacts and everything. But uh, in terms of victims, you know, uh, first of all, I would like to demystify a bit the tragedy of Pompeii. We know that only 10% of people died. Okay, hold on to that thought for a second, because mm -hmm. the rest of them were able to tell the history. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. We're talking with Laura Vigo, the curator for the Museum of Fine Arts here in Montreal, and the, I call her the archaeological queen. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a true statement of globalization when you come to Montreal to learn about Pompeii. Oh, yes, in fact it is. But, I mean, we are a, an encyclopedic museum, first of all, so our mandate is actually to sort of broaden up our topics to uh, worldwide. Now, right before the break, you said only 10% of the people were, were killed in, in the eruption of Vesuvius. That meant... 90%, see, I can do the math. Yes. 90% of the people live to tell the story and to rebuild. Well, it actually, it, they might have survived. We know for a, for a fact that Pliny the Younger is describing the eruption. He tells the story of all these, uh, you know, hordes of people walking away from the eruption. We also have archaeological evidence, in fact, of uh, uh, a famous retina who was the wife, the, the widow of a friend of Pliny the Elder. And he, she was in Bassano, which was closer to Herculanum at the time. And she sent off a message to Pliny the Elder, who was on the other side of the Bay of uh, of, uh, of Naples, saying, "Please come and save me." And uh, I, can, I, can tell, I, can, the, I get those messages all the time. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how you how, she, how you got the message anyway. I mean, there were no telephones at the time, so I wonder. But uh, Pliny the Younger is narrating the story, and he says that one of the reasons why Pliny the Elder took up his ship and his uh, you know navy basically to go and uh, see uh, see the Vesuvius eruption uh, closer by uh, close by was that he wanted to save. Retina. At the end, Pliny the Elder actually died uh, in Stabie. He, he couldn't reach uh, Retina, but we know Retina probably actually saved herself. She put a pillow on top of her head and she walked away. You know, at a certain point, she probably thought, mm, Pliny's not coming. So she actually walked. Men. <laughs> yes, exactly. And she walked, and we know this because uh, they found in, the, you know, in uh, 1954, they found uh, a shrine, a, a, a votive shrine in the, in the, in the mountains just behind Vesuvius uh, was like with this little dedication from a freed slave who was actually um, thanking the Lares or the, you know, the gods to save uh, his, miss, his, his matrona, his domina, his, uh, his lady, Retina, that got, sa you know, got saved from the eruption. So we know that for, for certain, Retina was a very, uh, very special name in itself, so there were not many Retinas. So, uh, we, may, we may think, and we would like to think, that, that Retina is the same one that uh, Pliny is talking about. Well, speaking of saving things, we're talking about the artifacts that were saved that are here now in Montreal. Sure. What's the most impressive artifact that you have that tells them the biggest story? Well, I mean, there are so many artifacts. And in fact, you know, the richness of Pompeii is the common life, is the, the life of the common people. So you see things that you wouldn't normally see in archaeological records, like carbonized breads, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, like saucepans used for making fried eggs. Um, but of course, we have beautiful works of art from micro mosaics, the very famous, talking about Leonardo da Vinci, you know, I call her the, you know, sort of Mona Lisa of the past. 
because the beautiful matrona, it's a, slightly, a tiny little 20 centimeters tall. I mean, <laughs> metric system. That's small. That's small. <laughs> Almost like 20 and uh, 30 centimeters tall. A uh, portrait of a lady uh, of the house made with little tiny tesseras. Uh, so we call it micro mosaic. And how do you display that? Well, we display it, we're trying to contextualize the object. So when you get into the house, we are actually going through the atrium and then the banquet area. So everything is displayed. So, so you recreated the yes. life in Pompeii. Yes, that's that's the idea because I was very much touched when I was young. I actually went to Pompeii several times. Of course, I'm Italian, so it's easy for me to go there. And, uh, you know, the first thing that struck me was really this kind of transcendental power of Pompeii that you can actually go and feel like you were there. So it's the emotional approach that I actually sort of privileged in the rather than the drama of the Vesuvius. So for me, it was important that people got into the exhibition uh, this experience of you know, being plunged into the past and being able to sort of experience life and emotions like Pompeians did 2,000 years ago. That's exactly what you guys did with the Da Vinci exhibit. Yeah. Before well, you were born. I know. Yeah. Stop it. No, Stop I, it. I certainly was born. I was dizzy. Okay. <laughs> I'm not that young anymore. But it's interesting that this portrait is so tiny. Yeah, I mean, it's a tiny little thing, and it's incredibly very fun. You can see all the details and the sort of sfumato, uh, actually. In the t- it looks like a painting from the distance. And uh, if you look at it, it's uh, almost like a chuck clothes of antiquities because you have all this little tiny tessera of different colors. And the artist was able, was able to recreate the actual essence of this lady. So you can actually look into her eyes and uh, see her almost talking to you. What's the uh, the takeaway here? What's the one message, having gone through this exhibit, that people are going to walk away with that they didn't know before? Well, I mean, people that have never been to Pompeii probably is the fact that you can actually see how people lived and how approach that actually how how close her life and her habits, her desires were, and uh, to to ours. Uh, so you know the. F- the fact that they wanted to, to live life for the moment, for instance, live life to the present. I think this is a message that one should take away from the exhibition, you know, carpe diem, of, uh, you know, that was actually said by Horace at the time of the eruption, even before, and then actually can actually be applied today. AMAX 403, contact departure, adios. Over to departure, gentlemen, 171, awesome job. Uh, if you were joining us earlier in the show, we've been talking to, to Bhargavi Varma. I asked her to stick around for this hour to finish our thoughts on uh, Canadian culture, or at least maybe even start them. But Bhargavi is the, is the co-founder of Lux Story Media. What is Lux Story Media? Lux Story Media produces premium travel video content. Travel, I mean, it's kind of common sense to say this. It's such a visually um, hungry uh, type of medium that I think... Video has a lot that it can share, and especially when it comes to story. It's so about we're, telling stories. We're in that space, and, and video, I mean, generally right now, Facebook and YouTube are kind of dominating the world. So. Okay. Well, let's go back to Canada as it relates mm-hmm. to video because it gets down to perception, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's either the great white north. It's either Dudley Do-Right, a couple of polar bears maybe. Does that really still exist? Oh, I, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah? 
Now, on the West Coast, people tend to be more familiar with Vancouver right. and the United States. Right. And the East Coast, a little bit more familiar with Toronto. Right. But for the bulk of the American public, they don't come to Canada. They don't know about it, unless they're living in a border state. Right. You know, if they're living in Vermont, for example, they drive up. Right. If they're living in Detroit, they go right over the, you know, the bridge. But most Americans have no idea how large Canada is. Mm -hmm. They have no idea how diverse it is. Mm -hmm. They have no idea how spectacular it is in all seasons. Yes. Right? So in terms of telling that story, what are the surprises for you in Canada as a Canadian? What are the surprises for me? As a destination. I mean, what are you, you know, for example... I'm always surprised by the by the food scene here in Montreal. Just uh, yes, yes. Um, I think Canadians, even living here, take for granted the multicultural element and how it seeps into the people that live here, uh, the access to whether it's the events that you can attend, uh, the exposure to cultures, and the exposure to the kinds of cuisines, the multicultural fabric of Canada, and I, I think. As Canadians, we either don't explore it enough, we don't understand it enough, um, and we don't appreciate it enough. So I would say for as a Canadian who's been living here a long time, I still feel like I've barely scratched the surface. For example, just in restaurants alone, yeah. I want great Asian food, great Asian food, I go to Vancouver. I want great Jamaican food, I go to Toronto. There's some great Jamaican food. And even though they closed it, the best steakhouse in North America was actually a Chinese restaurant on Eglinton in Toronto called the House of Chan. And you'd know everybody would go in there, there'd be a Chinese menu, maybe you'd have an egg roll, but you were there for the you know, for the ribeye. Now, I'm not eating meat anymore and they closed the restaurant. I don't know if the two are related that I yeah. don't eat it. <laughs> but the point is great food in places you would not necessarily expect that. Ethiopian food. I mean there's there's a cuisine that people come out and, you know, they've either they either didn't know Ethiopian food exists. I mean, gosh, they're missing out on injera bread. Uh, but, you know, just pockets, especially Toronto. And I, I think there's actually a bit of this in Montreal, too, where it's the pockets by culture. So you, you're literally going through a buffet of cultures in a city. There's not a lot of cities in the world where you can do that. And really, you really see this a lot, especially during uh, the soccer or football World Cup, where you can depending on who you want to support, go to Little Italy, Little Portugal, Little Brazil, and just basically be a bandwagoner through the entire, <laughs> the entire series. So it's, it's such an incredible experience when you think of uh, Toronto and Montreal that way, and especially Montreal uh, coming from a food perspective, and you know, hopefully something we'll get into as well as like from a festival perspective. One of my perceptions about Montreal, maybe it's incorrect, and I have the same perception of a city like Atlanta, mm -hmm. is that as the restaurant scene booms, mm -hmm. as it explodes, mm -hmm. these two cities, I think, have the most underutilized kitchens and homes in their countries because nobody eats at home anymore. Right. It's becoming a little New Yorkish like that, isn't it? Yeah. And that, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's time that we celebrate, especially with the amount of experimentation that's going on. Um, you know, it's something that would kind of naturally happen when you have a, a mishmash of all these cultures that some of the very talented chefs out there are starting to really, you know, take a little bit of Indian food and mix it in with, um, oh gosh, uh, you know, Asian or you know, Thai food and start to create foods that really just are new to a lot of our palates and... So, yeah, going kind of back to the Tim Hortons example, I say that in Tim Hortons, I love you, and we take a lot of pride in our Tim Hortons, but, man, the food that's available to eat here, and as we're talking about this, By I'm getting way, really hungry. By the way, in but... California, we take a lot of pride <laughs> in In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> In-N-Out Burger is Come on. a culture. It is. It, and celebrities, 
you know, you know like, I, the you, way celebrities you know show knew, that they eat. Is you know what I knew in and out Burger was a culture when one of the hostages was released in Iran. Yeah. And they said, you know, what can we get you? He says, I want a double-double. I'm like, what? what? What's that? <laughs> and that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Some people are convinced there's something else being put in there to get us that addicted, but that's maybe a separate I show. wouldn't know because I'm not a meat eater anymore, but I can appreciate it. Right. I go for the Asian food mm-hmm. in Vancouver, mm-hmm. the Jamaican food, and all sorts of other fun stuff. And the food we had we had dinner last night, great French fries, too. Yes. Yes. I mean, there's uh, there's chefs as well. Whether it's... Did you or did you not steal from my plate last night? I did. Thank you. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now at radio clearance, over. That's Clarence, over. Over. Roger. Huh? Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. As I said earlier in the show, every time I blink, another restaurant opens up in Montreal. It's, a, it's an explosion of gastronomy here. And uh, my next guest is the executive chef of a very coolly named restaurant. When we talk about the history of names, uh, his name is Jonathan Rassi. He's the executive chef at, why don't you say it in French? Le Restaurant Les 400 Coups which means 400 coups, which is, I'll, I'll try to do my bastardization of French, 400 mistakes. Exactly. Or bad behavior. <laughs> so I understand the title of it. I don't understand why. Uh, the reason behind it, I'm not quite sure about it. I'm not the one who came <laughs> up with the name, but uh, it's definitely a catchy name. It gets your attention. Absolutely. As opposed to calling it 400 successes, you're calling it 400, you know, we tried 400 times, maybe 401 will work. There you go. So what's different about your restaurant? I mean, because there's, as I said, you know, Montreal is such a multi-generational place right now, multicultural, uh, restaurants of any kind of pedigree here. What's special about yours? Well, at Cat Sancou, we definitely try to put forward um, all our local produce. So we, instead of using uh, purveyors that are big players on the, rest, on the restaurant scene here in Montreal, we def- we want to encourage all the little producers. So we go see, like... See, you could have called it 400 little producers. <laughs> we could have. Yeah. A little longer to pronounce, but I know. We, we could have. I know. <laughs> so give me an idea of where you're sourcing the food. Basically, we're sourcing any little farmer who has exceptional produce around Montreal. We do a lot of uh, from the South Shore, from the North. Uh, we get all our um, sea produce, mostly from Gaspésie. We use a lot of lake fish as opposed to ocean fish. So we definitely try to source as close as possible to the restaurant. So we're talking trout and perch. Uh, not necessarily perch. We're using trout. We're using uh, catfish. Uh, we use Gaspésie yes, scallops, sea urchin. So we're definitely sourcing as local as possible. Sea urchin is a lake fish? No, sea, sea urchin from the sea. Thank you. Because <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of lake urchin lately. <laughs> No, but we have from a lake, we have trout, we have walleye. Right. Um, so we definitely have our array of fish. And your signature dish? Um, personally, I don't have my signature dish on yet, but uh, we definitely try to, as opposed to having a signature dish, we have signature produce. So we definitely try to use like uh, ancient grains and stuff that are really um, rare on the, on the food scene that we definitely put forward. So what's your biggest challenge? Um Basically, winter. Huh. We've been working here in Quebec. Uh, we have basically 
five months to seed, grow, and harvest. So I think it brings us to a more intelligent cuisine working with local produce because we have to be preserving, we have to be fermenting, we have to be intelligent in our cooking to be able to use nice produce all year round. And so basically you're doing a lot of stuff all year round, like you're doing your own canning? Yes. Are you doing your own smoking? Absolutely. We what, what are you smoking? We, right now we have sturgeon, we have trout, we have... Oh, I uh, love it. Like our our freezers are full of fresh berries. We're we're preserving apples. We're preserving every fruit vegetable we can think of. We're pickling everything. So at the end of the season is our big rush because the restaurant we just fill up every space with with fresh produce. Right, because you're you're basically like the squirrel storing the nuts for the winter. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I always ask the chefs this. Got to ask you too. What's the one dish you put on your menu that you thought everybody was going to love and it tanked? And what's the one dish you thought, who's going to buy this, and everybody wants it? Well, that's that's the def- it's definitely hard for chefs in general, I'd say. Because, you know, you work hard on a dish, you think about it, you test it for months, you finally put it on, and people don't necessarily order it as much as you'd like to. Like? Um, let's say we put an awful plate on, on, on the menu, like uh, we put sweetbreads or heart or brain or something. That's something that's very touchy to work. Very delicate, and when you ha- when you have the recipe right, then you know it's it's ex- exquisite. Okay, I'm, I'm going to give you a hint. I'm not ordering that. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm going to go for the smoked sturgeon. I just want to <laughs> let you know that now. Yeah, but you'd be surprised. Sturgeon is not the biggest seller either. People like it, but a lot of people are scared to order. it. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay, and the one dish that you thought nobody was going to order that everybody does. Well, anything that's very straightforward and simple. You know, you put a piece of meat with some kind of starch or something, like it definitely flies off the chart. That's but, it? Yeah, absolutely. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? promise you the problem of my voice will be solved by the next show. Guaranteed. But uh, speaking of show, my next guest knows all about that because for the last 15 years he's been working for probably one of the biggest festivals in in Canada, if not the world. Uh, His name, Laurent Saulnier. uh, In the world. Let's put it that way. Biggest festival in the world. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Already he's being. (laughs) Okay. All right, smarty pants. How how big is it? Um, To to be honest to you, um, I'm working with uh, Montreal Jazz Festival, which is the largest jazz festival in the world. I'm working for a festival called Francophonie, uh, which is the biggest festival in the world dedicated to French music. And Montréal en Mien, which starts uh, on Thursday, and uh, this is, yeah, let's put it that way also, the biggest winter festival in the world. And the festival that we're talking about that's starting right away yeah. is what in particular? Uh, it's, a, it's a mix of so many different things because there's uh, entertainment, uh, concerts, uh, theater, uh, dance, etc., uh, etc. Et there's uh, gastronomy. Uh, we're working with... Well, uh, you got to eat. Uh, sometimes, yeah. yeah. But you have to eat. Well, and it's not the same thing than just eat. 
eat well. Uh, we're working with uh, a little bit more than 50 different restaurants in Montreal uh, to bring some different menu during those 10 days of the festival. There's the outdoor site where there's a, there's a zip line, there's concert, there's so many things to do uh, on the uh, outdoor site, even if sometimes you know that in Montreal in February could be a little bit cold sometimes. But not this year. Apparently, this year will be fine. But last year, that was well, freezing. Let me ask you the question. Yep. What was the temperature last week in Montreal? Uh, la- <laughs> last the truth. Last weekend. Yeah. Um, with uh, the wind factor. Yeah. Uh, it was something like, what, minus 35 or something like that. That was just a little bit crazy. But hey. Uh, you know what? When I hear minus 35, I think zip lining. I'm kidding. Okay. Me too. Good. Me too. Always, but, always. Minus 35, zip lining, but same you, package. But you know what? <laughs> Funny you should mention that. In New York last week, it was zero, and today it's 50. So it's a crazy year. But it's a crazy year. You know, year. it's an El Nino year. Yes, it is. That that's Apparently, that's the problem. I'm, I, I'm not a, an expert in right. weather or anything like that. But, you know, when you're working in a festival in wintertime in Montreal, you have to be aware of all those things because each and every time that we're thinking about something to put on the outdoor side we have to think about the snow the wind the rain uh, and everything between that uh, the temperature could be from minus 30 to plus 10 or something like that so each and every time that we're thinking about something could it work with all those different weather and the answer of course involves alcohol for sure I'm just double checking. <laughs> so, how do you choose the acts? How do you choose the performers? Uh, depends, depends. Because um, you know, uh, Montreal Almier is a is a partnership festival. We're working a lot with uh, the the uh, dance companies, the theater companies here in Montreal. So, we're uh, we're talking a lot to those people to choose uh, what will be on during the, the the time of the festival, and we're also. Uh, producing, uh, let's put it, maybe something like 30, 35 uh, different concerts. Uh, how we choose that? Um, you know, uh, touring in the northeast part of North America at that time of the year, it's not obvious. There's a lot of people that just don't want to tour because there could be snow, there could be rain, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So um, almost um, each and every one artists are what we're calling in the music business, the one-off. They're dropping to Montreal and they're returning to their home. So uh, we have to find some people that are first available. And we're working a lot with the, um, with the, the, the music community here in Montreal uh, to present some premieres or record launch or, you know, things like that to start uh, the, 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 the season here in Montreal. And the actual dates of the festival? Start February 18th. And we're rolling till March 5th. So just started. Just started. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So bottom, the fun is beginning. The drinking is beginning. Also, but you can have fun without drinking. And you can drink without having fun also. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's what I would call a festival. <laughs> exactly. A <Yeah>. bad festival. <laughs> I love it. Who's your most interesting performer this year? Um, for surprising performer. Um, for me, uh, I, I think uh, coming from uh, coming from friends, there's a band called Aaron. Um, Aaron is uh, one of the best band in France, actually, kind of electropop thing. 
But uh, the, the, the main reason why we choose uh, this band to perform during Montréal and Mia this year is not only about the music, but it's also about the light show. Because Montréal and Mia, it's about light. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick... From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.